Nothing discussed with Carla Hauser in this conversation is meant to diagnose or treat any condition, or takes the place of talking with your own healthcare professionals. Aloha and welcome everyone to another episode of From Anxiety to Clarity. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich from Sutter Health Kahimohala. And this program is brought to you by my colleague, Trisha Kajimura, and me, and our very, very good friends at Brain Gain Hawaii, especially Evan Leung and Coco Leung, who always engineers for us. So where are we as we're in this first full weekend of October? Actually, maybe it's the second full weekend of October. And we're waiting to see how the state's going to be opening this next week to Trans-Pacific travelers, they'll be able to come here, as we've been talking about for a long time, with a pre-travel test, and that will have to be done 72 hours before the last leg of their journey to Hawaii. That'll be the caveat that we really haven't heard before, and we'll see how that goes. The business community certainly is anticipating that. Of course, the uh, tourism community has been wanting this for a very long time, but everyone is deeply concerned about our health and well-being and what this means as we go forward. And as we all need to continue to take matters into our own hands and mask and distance and be very careful about the people that we're around. The same things we've heard for a very long time, but now it will become even more crucial to do that as we will be welcoming visitors. And uh, as many people have been trying to get us to understand, this is not a visitor issue with us experiencing COVID that very much it's, it's our own issue too. And we want to make sure that there's no reciprocity of, of sharing COVID-19. So that's sort of the big overview picture of where we are. But what we've been doing during the series, as you know, is taking a real look at how COVID-19 is affecting our community from a mental health perspective. And certainly a group that has been marginalized in, in a great way for a very long time have been homeless youth. Uh, those between say 18 and 24 who are out there on the streets are fending for themselves with, with very little support. But one of the supports they do have is an organization called RISE, which stands for Residential Youth Services and Empowerment. And today we're gonna to talk with RISE Executive Director, Carla Hauser, and check in and see how our homeless youth are faring as we are all coping with the pandemic. Carla, good to talk to you again. Thank you, Beth Ann. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really an honor to be here and, and talk about the experiences of our young people. So thanks. Well, and thank you for giving up a morning to be able to do this with us. I know it's we do these living room to living room conversations on the weekends, and then we upload them so that people can hear, hear what's going on at the moment. And uh, having been very concerned about our homeless youth for a very long time, and the fact that we don't really have great, uh, you know, accurate numbers about them, despite the point in time campaign that happens every single year in January, that count comes up with numbers. But as you know, I heard for a very, very long time as a journalist, these numbers are not terribly accurate. Uh, a lot of youth know where they can simply sequester themselves so that they aren't part of it and, and don't choose to be. But that doesn't mean that they're not there, and you know that they're not there. So what have you been seeing over the last many months as we've been all 
countering the effects of COVID-19 and trying to stay healthy and well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to, to touch on what you said about how homeless youth really uh, lay low under the radar. Um, in some ways, a lot of what we're experiencing right now with this pandemic is not new um, for young, uh, young people that are experiencing homelessness. You know, so often um, they want to stay away um, from others. They tend to be very transient. They don't stay very long in the same place. Um, oftentimes they are trying to stay away from law enforcement and, um, you know, people of authority, whether it's because, you know, they've been on the run for so long or they're um, just trying to stay safe in a way. And so keeping distance from others, being kind of isolated is, is unfortunately very much the norm for many of these young people living on the streets. Um, I think it's also uh, important to correlate. Um, there are a lot of people right now who've experienced food insecurities and what it's like to not know where your next meal is coming from and um, to have to stand in line and what that feels like to someone. Um, but this is the status quo for a lot of our, our street youth as, as we go out and try and engage them. Um, I think point in time barely scratches the surface of what we actually see. Um, last year, we had 171 young people come through our shelter. Um, and that's about how many we counted. And we know for a fact that a number of, of these youth are still out there, still you know, apprehensive to come in and seek services. But um, you know, we're, we're absolutely, um, it's, it's kind of mind blowing because uh, for the last two years, uh, our outreach teams have been doing such a great job to bring youth in, come into the shelter. And uh, we run a 30 bed shelter in Kailua. And, um, you know, we get young people from all different walks of life, um, you know, different ethnicities, different levels of abilities, different um, disabilities. And we live congre congregately, <laughs> all under one roof. And then COVID happens, and um, you know everything that we read from HUD and their guidelines and the CDC was, uh, you know, get people out of congregate shelters, get people, um, you know, into housing. And um, so we almost had to take our model of bringing young people in, building trusting relationships and rapport, um, connecting them to service. Um, and allowing people time to kind of just be, like come into the shelter, sit tight, get some sleep, much needed sleep, um, and then find out what pathway is best for you. So with COVID being introduced, um, we've, we've had to shift our model a little bit and uh, really focus on getting young people out of the shelter, whether they really are ready um, and they've demonstrated all those independent living skills or not. Um, the goal has really been get them out, get them into more permanent housing, and then provide the wraparound support there in you know, their own housing unit. Um, so it's been a, a very delicate balancing game. Um, our young people for about five months now have had to shelter in place. We've had to change a lot of the rules that made our shelter really uh, appealing to young people. Um, in the past, pre-COVID, we didn't have uh, curfew. Um, we really allowed a lot of um, flexibility for our young people to be able to come in and, and stay as, as they kind of built up that trusting relationship with us. And so um, now with shelter in place orders 
and this mindset that we really have to try and protect some of our most vulnerable that are in the shelter. Um, we have young people with developmental disabilities who um, can't really comprehend a lot of what's going on right now. Um, we have young people that are immune, immune compromised. And so um, really trying to find that balance of how do we keep the young people that are in, in our shelter safe and at the same time be able to you know, address the needs of someone um, who maybe isn't quite ready yet for housing, so. You know, Carla, a lot of this that, you know, you and I have talked about many years prior, this hasn't changed a whole lot in terms of how youth are regarded. I mean, specifically, you know, homeless youth, street youth are regarded. And when you say things like, you know, we have youth with disabilities, we have youth who are immune compromised, uh, we have kids who are out there for a variety of reasons. Is the community really beginning to understand this now because of, of what has happened with COVID? That we really are talking about a population that is just as vulnerable as potentially, you know, Kapuna, because these kids are exposed to far more. It's not like, you know, your average kid in your average household uh, who may get a milder version of COVID if they get COVID. But when you're talking about kids who are dealing with a lot of disabilities, a great deal of stress, not having, you know, food or shelter security, having to cope with possibly being immunocompromised as it is. Are people beginning to understand that any better? I hope so. And I, I hope that as, as staff and at le as leaders with our, within our organization, um, we're not only getting the message out about, hey, look, you know, 47% of the young people who came to RISE last year had a diagnosis of either, you know, mental health, substance use disorder, um, developmental disabilities. So, you know, these, these aren't just, you know, quote unquote, punk kids that don't want to follow rules. These are young right. people, right, exactly, that haven't right. fit into a, a box. And, you know, on the flip side of that, uh, we hear so often about young people disregarding, you know, rules about social distancing and mask wearing. And, and I have to say that really has not been the case with the young people that live at RISE. Um, you know, and I think that really starts with our staff um, modeling a lot of, you know, how to keep each other safe and why mask wearing is important. Um, these kids are so overwhelmed with so many different messages that adults send to them all the time, right? And, and then where they are in their adolescent development, you know, they're still trying to learn the processes, you know, to go from childhood to adulthood you know, physically, intellectually, you know, they're, they're an adult, yeah. but then, you know, still Can, trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to, forgive me for interrupting you, but I want to no. stop you right there because I think that's a very important point. And I know that, you know, we, we've seen this in past where just because a child, a kid, somebody is a particular age, it doesn't necessarily mean that their chronological age syncs with their experiential age or syncs with their psychological age. And all of those things together create that person. And the rest of us only see the shell, but not really what's happening inside. And trying to get that message out that just because you know a kid may be 18 and, and quote unquote an adult doesn't mm -hmm. mean that that child really has become an adult and maybe in, in some ways highly advanced in, in what their experiential age may be 
but very much dealing with the emotions of someone who may be 12 or 15, that all that, that package hasn't quite come together because that's still a time in, in, the, in a normal way where a kid would be putting together how he or she fits into the world anyway, let alone having the experience of being homeless, immunocompromised, having a disability, having substance uh, use a part of their lives, having mental illness as part of their lives or combinations or any of those things. And uh, I'm just concerned that as we talk about this, that that message seems not to be out there in the world in the way. And the fact that you said before that you hope that people have different ideas about this also tells me that, that perhaps they really don't. And, and I'm wondering how it is that you see a path forward to be able to change some of those perceptions of who these kids really are and what they really need. And if we can just talk a little bit about that now, what do you see going forward? Uh, that's a great question. And I think that what we've been able to do to really start to highlight who these young people are, um, you know, this is really, um, the first time that we have our, we've opened our books to state, city, and county, even on the federal level, to basically you know show the data of like here's the young people that you know are falling out of systems, that are falling through cracks, whether it's through you know child and adolescent mental health, whether it's you know holes in our foster care system, or you know we see an increasing number of of children who are experiencing trafficking and exploitation. And, and every one of these kids continue to kind of fall through gaps. And really it's, it's our, our mission is to be able to catch some of these young people and, and you know, stand on the pulpit and, and be able to say, this is what we need. And we have started to foster some amazing relationships with our health plans um, through coordinated community services um, for young people that really are going to need a, a lifetime of care and support, being able to connect them now at 18, 19 years old with that wraparound support, as opposed to waiting, um, you know, until exactly. they're in their 30s, right? And so starting now with, you know, their psychiatric med management, starting now with starting to heal the trauma and, um, you know, kind of looking at the resiliency the, the resiliency of young people does not get enough credit. Um, we're even talking about that right now in our uh, coordinating entry system, trying to decide what youth are eligible to receive a housing voucher. And so much of what we look at with homeless folks is, you know, how vulnerable are they? And, and again, not looking at it from a strength-based perspective, which is really crucial with youth um, yes, they've experienced all these traumas, adverse, we talk about ACEs, adverse childhood ACEs, experiences, right? right? Um, but but what, what are their strengths? What are, you know, is it, do they have a good social capital built around them? And if they don't, how do we? Is it through faith-based organizations? Is it through employment or education? Um, and really trying to find ways to continue to lift them up, especially right now when they're at that age where they're really kind of malleable and, and um, and so I think that's really an exciting time um, for us to be able to advocate, um, to show, um, I mean, RISE youth are everywhere in the community. It's a big part for us. Um, they've done a lot of the food distributions that have been happening during COVID. Um, 
you know, we're working at Kupa Aina, which is a, a farm on our campus. And so really just, I think, drawing attention from the community that, you know, these are, these are young people that are experiencing homelessness most of the time at no fault of their own. And, um, you know, how do we move, how do we move forward? What are, what are the solutions? I, I don't want to talk about problems in the systems. How do we move forward? And, um, and I, and I feel, I feel like we are getting there. Um, we, we've had the attention of a lot of, um, a lot of different stakeholders now to start to address this. So often these young people have been out of sight, out of mind. Um, so. so name those stakeholders, just so everyone is really clear who you've been able to make some inroad with at this point. Sure, um, we have been working closely with ADAD, Child and Adolescent Mental Health, uh, we've been working with the juvenile justice system. Um, the director of Department of Human Services, the new director, Kathy Betts, has been, um, we have had her ear for a while now talking about the right to shelter minors, how it makes zero sense to allow a child who, um, you know, lays low under the radar, doesn't want to go into some sort of structured emergency shelter, but it uh, makes a whole lot more sense to at least put a roof over their head and surround them with 24-7, you know, adult supervision and give them the time to start to figure out, you know, what their pathway looks like out of homelessness. Um, the governor's office, uh, city and counties, um, you know, Department of Community Service have been um, very wide-eyed at, at the, you know, what young people are experiencing. Um, we partnered with Alea Bridge and city and county, and we've opened mm. up the Holly Eva project, mm. which we're really excited about. And again, you know, being able to provide affordable housing options for young people where they can go and have the time to, you know, figure out their path and, and what it is that they want to do in their life. Um, and do you have any private individuals who are, are working with you to help shelter some of these youth who, who, who need some, some guidance and who may be at lower levels of risk? Of, is, has there been any sort of outreach in that way, sort of a, a post-foster foster home? You know, we, we have talked about that. And um, recently there was uh, a Fed, some federal uh, guide, uh, funding that came down through the homeless uh, through HUD, it was for the Youth Homeless Demonstration Project. And one of the buckets that we could apply for was a program that's been very, very successful in the mainline called Host Homes. Yes. Um, I think most of the providers here on Oahu were a little you know, shy to apply for that. And it's not a bucket that um, folks went for. Um, but it is something that we're talking about on a national level. Uh, Point Source Youth has been offering some technical assistance for us in how we could create more affordable housing, short-term options. Um, you know, when uh, city and county put in the mandate and they eliminated vacation rentals, that took a chunk out of a lot of people's, you know, income that was coming in. You know, they didn't want right. to commit to long-term rentals. So it's something that we are starting to explore, um, renting you know, a room from someone, um, having a host home, you know, parents be um, someone that can provide guidance and support to a young person while being able to have some income coming in. So you know, we are just constantly looking outside of the box for those non-traditional types of housing. Um, you know, when I first jumped into this, the only real option was the housing subsidy 
you know, for a studio apartment. And as yes, we've I remember that. Them, yeah, you know, $14 an hour full time right. is what you need to make to survive in Hawaii. And, and most of our young people are in their current state are undereducated, under, underemployed, so it's not a reality. Um, so what is, and how do we find those solutions? So we're starting to look at more uh, shared housing, um, you know, getting multiple youth together to rent a house um, with wraparound support, with staff, you know, on campus 40 hours a week. And so far that model has been really successful for us um, because again, why are we creating something outside of the box, which most of us, when we were adolescents, our first step outside the home wasn't to go rent an apartment by yourself, uh, at, you know, for $1,200 a month. It's just, that's no, not- it was a dorm happen. most likely for kids exactly. who went to college, or if you didn't, you shared and you got a job. Exactly. Exactly. And so why we've created these housing pathways that are outside the norm um, for homeless youth. So we're, we're going to turn that upside down a little bit and, and look for, you know, alternative ways to, to help our young people be successful. Hawaii has this idea of itself that it's had for a very long time, that we are very progressive, that we're very open to ideas. But in hearing your conversation just a moment ago and, and others that I've had for a very long time, it seems that we are far more reticent. That's when we sort of wait for someone to say, it's all right, you can come out now. It's okay to do this, as opposed to taking the lead and, and moving forward. And there are lots of you know, ways in which we could point to that kind of thing, you know, the waiting and the tentative behavior. But with this, um, and especially in, in a time of COVID, this doesn't seem to be one of those ways in which you know, we should hold back. It should be, if anything, a way in which to release more and to be able to do more because we are in a time of, of COVID-19 and with a pandemic and with all of the guidance that's coming down that says, look, even if we get a vaccine, you're gonna have you know, the top 20% who are in the most vulnerable categories who will be vaccinated. Maybe that will include our homeless youth. Will it in your mind? Are, would you see them falling into that category? Because if not, it's going to be quite a long time. And that would seem to advocate for a much better way to be able to help homeless youth be able to integrate into society in a much healthier way so that we're not dealing with an even bigger issue 10 years down the line. Yeah. And, you know, even taking a step back from that, um, you know, we in our congregate shelter, we had a COVID scare a few weeks ago and, um, I, I'm not sure if you've experienced what a, a COVID, you know, the nasal swab is, and it's, it's not fun. Um, and, you know, we've worked really hard to build these trusting relationships with our young people. And then when we had to go in lockdown in our shelter and every young person had to get multiple COVID tests, um, we started running into the risk that, you know, these kids are going to stop telling us when they're symptomatic. Um, because if they have symptoms, they think the next things they're going to get their brain poked is, is the next step in this. So we're looking at more ways that we can be proactive, just even in our testing. Um, because the last thing we want to do is ruin this therapeutic relationship that we've started to establish with our young people, talking about ways to keep them safe, talking about um, being proactive in, in you know, this fight against COVID you know, mm -hmm. actively washing your hands, getting tested. Well, now in their mind, getting tested means 
pain, something traumatic. So we're looking at, you know, some of the alternative rapid tests that are coming out, um, doing more of the pool testing, just so we can keep everyone safe in our congregate shelter until we're able to, to move them along. Um, but so much of it is, you know, going back again to so much of the misinformation that young people, it just depends on who they follow on, on, you know, TikTok or what, who their Instagram, whether or not they believe what's, what's happening. And we're fortunate right now, most of our young people think Josh Green's pretty cool. Um, he did a visit to our shelter a few months ago. So they follow him. They're really into, you know, his daily reports. Um, but, you know, for us, it's just get, so much of what these young people are about is, is, you know, they're so compassionate. They want to bring others along. More and more of our referrals are coming from our young people. So trying to get that mindset that you're protectors, you know, you're using your powers for good right. in this community um, is, you know, we're just trying to keep that same mantra going for, for our young people. To, to well, you positive. took the, you know, that question right out of my mouth because I was really wondering what kind of uh, relationship exists between those youth who are in RISE and active participants with you and those who are not yet even acquainted with it. And if there's any outreach that's happening youth to youth, particularly as we're dealing with COVID that would not make them uh, even more, more vulnerable, but would help to spread the best part of all this, which is the words about how to keep safe and what it is that RISE can do for them, not only in a time of COVID, but I mean, as we're gonna stay in that place uh, with other needs and services that they're going to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that is really, really important. So much of what we try to do is, is under this idea that's you know, with you, not for you. Um, that is really, really important for us. That's the empowerment piece to what we try to do. Right, uh, and, and, and a kid is probably going to listen to another kid, and I, and I use that term kid very loosely, but, yeah. you know, a younger person is going to listen probably to another younger person in a very different way and maybe with higher acuity and attention then mm -hmm. perhaps they might listen to someone who is more of an authority figure or um, you know, a, par a parental figure, unless they're thinking they're really cool, in which yeah. case that's mm -hmm. golden. But mm -hmm. other than that, just looking at how, I mean, how to sort of marshal these diplomats that you have that you're naturally creating to be able to spread that word and, and keep even more people protected and gain more services for those who really need them now and uh, which will be far less expensive to handle now than if we wait many years down the line. Yeah, absolutely. We're really fortunate that, you know, we have staff with lived experience who are able to relate to our young people. Um, you know, when in our hiring practices, we, we are looking, you know, for those staff that can reach our outliers. Um, and we also do a really good job of hiring young people. Um, yes. We have peer outreach workers. We have training opportunities for our youth. Um, there's a really big push right now for us uh, working with, uh, we are Oceana to make sure yes. that we are connected with our COPA migrant youth. Um, we have a, a good project that's coming on board through the Youth Homeless Demonstration Project that will partner directly with them. Um, to be able to hire and train up peer outreach workers who are COPA migrants so that 
um, you know, we can increase this pool of social service providers um, that look and talk just like the young people that we're trying right. to serve. And what better way than to have someone who's, you know, been on an alumni of our program come through and be able to, you know, to go into Kalihi or different communities and say, hey, look, this is where I was. Um, you know, this is, you know, what changed my life. And so we really are about empowering our young people to help us, you know, keep that message. That's very much the leading by example in a very different way than we normally think about that, being Mm -hmm. able to move into subpopulations and have it talk to itself with believability and credibility that, you know, from top down wasn't necessarily happening. And certainly we saw that Um, you know, for months and months with some of the messages that were coming out about COVID, they were so directed to a particular population that everybody else is being left out. And then we saw a rise in cases within subpopulations within the Pacific Islander community, I mean, community itself. And all of a sudden people's, you know, perceptions of what they needed to do changed. Mm -hmm. Would that, that could have been a little bit more proactive and earlier on, but you know, that, 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 is far gone now. Now we have to look at what it is that we can do as we do move forward together on, on these little islands and what that means for us for homeless youth. Mm-hmm. If you could look forward in the next, you know, say year or so, what is it that would make a real difference to happen between that point and now? That's real short term, I know, really, truly. But what is it that would really make a difference for you know, the, the mental health, for the vulnerability of the kids that you serve, the young people that you serve from you know, 18 to 24, those really, really difficult years of transition in the normal way, but let alone with everything else coming at the kids who you serve. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that, I think a year from now, we're really gonna be hitting the, the peak of where we are with youth homelessness. I don't think we've even started to scratch the surface. When we look at, um, I believe it was a month or two ago, public housing started really cracking down on who was staying there. You know, if you weren't on the lease, you weren't allowed to be there. That sent a whole lot of 18 to 24 year olds out, out to the streets. Um, And even though we have a rent moratorium right now, um, we are starting to see young people being evicted. We have a higher rate of young people sleeping in cars right now. Um, you know, finding different parking lots, finding different places, um, because again, you know, low socioeconomic young people are, are the ones that are going to get hit with all of this first and foremost. So for me, it's really about continuing to strengthen families, um, because that is a, a legitimate pathway for our young people, um, you know, like it or not, communal living is, is part of our culture here in Hawaii, if we're gonna be able to afford to live here. So if there have been you know, past you know, abuses and, and trauma, like how do we help heal the family as a whole to move past it um, and, and um, really start to heal? I think um, you know, so many of our young people, when we look at it, um, you know, so many of our youth have had parents that have been incarcerated or parents that have substance use you know, um, issues. So again, trying to really strengthen that family. So our youth, you know, can, um, you know, have continuity in their life really. And then, you know, my hope is that we can continue to build on more of these outside of the box housing resources for young people. Um, 
And um, so, you know, I, I'd love to be sunshine and rainbows and think, oh, a year from now, we're going to have it all figured out. But no, uh, and, and, and honestly, Carla, that's not why I asked you that question. I asked you specifically to elicit an answer that you just gave that you don't think it's going to be sunshine and rainbows. In fact, we're probably just going to be hitting what a lot of us are terming the mental health wave. Yeah. And that has a whole lot of ramifications for the young people that you serve. But it also means that right now, if we can get that message out there more fully, that people can start to prepare for it in a much better way than say, we prepared for disseminating messages about COVID and left out communities. Mm -hmm. So really, I think there's a, a, and this is just my opinion, but it's a time where we can choose to get some of those messages out a little bit better than we did before to learn the lessons of just a few months ago so that when these mental health with this mental health wave starts to hit and it's going to hit lots of kids not just kids who are on the street not kids just who are you know 18 to 24 but all kinds of people adults too because yeah. you know we've never had any experience with prolonged remote work prolonged remote school kids mm -hmm. potentially fearing going back to school kids fearing social interaction so many things that will compound many generations but specifically looking at the one that you serve or that, you know, that, that six year group between 18 to 24. And of course, you know, the 24 year olds will be, become 25 year olds and, and move across and what right. they'll be able to do to help, you know, younger folks in being able to cope with all of this. Mm -hmm. So if there is like one message that you would want the rest of the, you know, the state to know about right now from everything that you know, um, and you can you can pack it in with a couple of messages, but what is it that you really would like people to focus on right now as as we go forward and hopefully can mitigate the situation a year from now? I think that we we have to expand um, how we teach, how we how we connect, how we um, relate to young people. Um, you know, to, to have the school systems just completely fall out from underneath, especially our population. Um, you know, every, every low barrier education program that we had our young people in pre-COVID closed. And, and we know that this virus is now going to be part of our lives. And so how do we not allow that to, to be interrupted in such a way that it has been? Um, to me, that I think is a really that's the really disheartening piece in all of this is that you get young people who have come through some really horrific experiences, but for them to kind of take a beat, take a moment and then say, this is the pathway that I want to go and I want to do construction or I want to do medical and I want to do nursing. Um, and then to, to actually take those steps and then to have it all kind of fall through um, that has been, I think, where we've had to do a lot of the work in you know, keeping our young people engaged. And so continuous to find, you know, I'd love to hear that KCC is now doing, you know, new classes to help people learn new skills and new. Um, so, you know, I definitely think that's, that's a, a great pathway to go. Um, and for me, I think it's, I, I love hearing about the new um, the youth commission that's coming on board for the state. Um, I love what Partners in Care has done with the Oahu Youth Action Board. Um, 
you know, within our continuum of care of all of the homeless service providers to have a youth voice um, has been really incredible. And to hear them that, um, you know, these young people, one of their biggest issues is that, you know, they were system kids and their greatest frustration was they'd have a case manager that they really liked and that case manager would be gone in a, in a month. It would be gone in a year. So, you know, being able to build in more long-term supports for young people. They don't have it in teachers now because now it's just a computer screen, right? So they don't, so where do they find those positive adults? Where do they find that connection? And, you know, the other piece that I don't think really gets talked about enough right now is, is when does, when does the help come for the essential workers? Um, we've got folks that have been working at IHS. We've got street outreach workers for HHRC, Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center. Um, you know, all of these different service providers that have been, you know, kind of taking a step back from their own families and their own fears of getting COVID and showing up to work every single day. Heather Lawson made that point in a question and in a conversation that we had, and I asked her about that too. And just, she says, you know, people just don't know when to quit. They go and go and go until they can't. Yeah. Yeah. And that to me is, is if we don't Malama the, the caregivers, um, that is what I, I worry about as, you know, for the health of even our organization, it's, I, I want our young people to be safe and, and to have good well-being. Um, but my staff have been going nonstop for almost six months now. And, and I do worry, where, where is their mental health? I worry about when do they get time to just be at home and, and you know, the opportunity to get bored at home. And, um, you know, yeah, none of us know what that, that's like <laughs> when, we're, when we're doing this kind of work where it's like, right. what, do you, what do you mean? I mean, people are making wonderful things and they're having lots of fun time or whatever. And, yeah. and there's a whole bunch of people who don't even know what that's like because they're so busy. They're putting in 12, 14 hour days all the time, including weekends, always on call. And we don't really talk enough about them. People think about that in terms of a hospital worker, but there's so many others who are doing that in the very, very same way. So yeah, I, I, mean, I hope we can get some help for them too. Yeah, I mean, it really, it rattled, you know, the RISE staff when IHS lost a worker. A lot of my staff uh, knew Willie and they knew, you know, what he did. And he was such a great referral. Anytime a young person would come into IHS, he would pick up the phone and call us. So that was deeply impactful for, for our team. And so, um, you know, we do a really good job, I think, in-house, but it, you know, we're constantly looking for new ways to refresh. And, and um, you know, one thing that I would definitely like to see is making sure that funders uh, hold agencies accountable and make sure that we're paying living yes. wages um, for these essential workers. I think that that is really important going forward. Um, because the last thing that we can afford to have is a lack of, of, of essential workers willing to show up to do the work. It's, um... Well, and that's the big fear. I mean, we've even seen this with nurses and with other hospital staff and why we've had to bring them in because A, our folks here need some respite so that they don't become ill. Uh, and that they can go forward because we know we're going to be dealing with this for a very long time. And also because we simply just don't have enough people, period. 
but we're really not focusing on outreach workers and the people who are, you know, hitting the streets trying to make sure that we have better, you know, better conduits to organizations, including RISE, to be able to stem what we can now and not have it come back and hit us later on, because surely it will. I mean, it's not going to just miraculously go away, uh, as you know, some people thought years ago when you know, they were only counting maybe you know 5,000 or so people who were homeless. And they said, you know, don't worry about it. I remember asking that question you know, when I was just an intern at public radio and, and the response I got was, you know, yeah, we're taking care of not an issue. Well, we see what a non-issue it has become. And this is in the very same way, unless we really take care of this now. Yeah. And I'm glad you are. And I'm glad you're doing all the great work that you've been doing with RISE for a very long time now. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Attribute is there anything? What? Oh, no, I just, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to, to surround myself with just an amazing, an amazing collective of, of people who love the work, who, who love, you know, seeing these young people, you know, grow into these amazing human beings. And um, so very, very fortunate. So as we're heading into the last part of our conversation this morning, what is it that you think we really need to know going forward? And um, I'm just really glad that, that you're there to be doing so much of this work. Are there things that you want to tell us before we say goodbye today? Yeah, I, I thank you for that, that opportunity. Um, you know, none of this, uh, there isn't a playbook for this pandemic. And I think what uh, so often we, we give credit to a lot of the nurses and the doctors um, and I, I, I think it's really important to highlight the work of the essential workers, the street outreach workers, you know, the shelter workers, um, you know, uh, the folks that show up every day. Um, I have staff that have, you know, children the same age as Rise residents, and um, yet they're they're able to compartmentalize. They they keep their families safe at home. They make sure that they, um, you know are as safe as possible and they come into the shelter and they work very long hours and they work to disinfect and clean and keep folks safe. So I worry about them. I worry about the mental health of the, the frontline workers who show up every day. Um, and, and I think it's important going forward to make sure that they are part of the conversation, um, making sure that uh, funders fund projects that um, support them also to have a living wage. Um, this work isn't easy. And, um, and I think making sure that we uh, take care of those folks as well is really essential. Especially since these are the folks that we don't normally see out there in the public sphere being talked about as being frontline workers, except for maybe, you know, parenthetically, most people think about frontline workers are people who are in hospitals and all true. And the fact that we've needed nurses to be brought into the state, we've needed other staff to be brought into the state, but we haven't really been talking enough. I think you made that point really well about the frontline workers who are really out there on the street, the outreach workers, those who are doing such essential work that will hopefully keep us from seeing this part of the situation bloom in, in the future. And thank you so much for, for just being willing to talk this morning. And we'll, we'll talk again. And okay. even my puppy says, thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
And for those of you joining us from Anxiety to Clarity, this episode, if you would like to see a particular conversation for another episode, let me know. My email is kozlovb, that's K-O-Z as in zebra, L-O-V as in Victor, B as in boy, at sutterhealth.org. And I'll be happy to get you an answer. If you have a question, you can use that same email and we'll make sure we get you an answer to a question if you've got one. Otherwise, we will see you next time from Anxiety to Clarity. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. Aloha.